Welcome to episode 141 of the Various and Sundry Podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the Vault Studio on the beautiful campus of Grace College Theological Seminary by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man whom I have no adjectives for right now. Wow. John Scott Sloat. Wow. See, normally I think of that before I launch, and then I just I, I realized halfway through my intro, I mm. don't have a catchy little thing to say about John Sloat. That's okay. Maybe there's something there's nothing remarkable about me today, <laughs> uh, apparently. I guess not. That's fine. I guess not. I guess not. So What's new with John Sloat these days? Uh, it's a little fallish this morning. Love it. A uh, little, little brisk, a little yes. chill. Yeah, we're recording on uh, on a Monday, as is our normal practice. Back into that routine, and uh, yeah, like I'm not even sure it's supposed to get up to sixty today. So it's got that fall brisk, cool yeah. air. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Although by the end of the week, I think it's supposed to be back up to like close to ninety. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're not. We're we're not. Again, we don't get fall here in Indiana. It doesn't feel like anymore. We go from like average high of upper seventies, low eighties to suddenly, okay, now we're in the forties for the next. Like mm-hmm. you know, it just the the in between period has has disappeared. Let me ask you this: How much stock do you put in the farmer's almanac? Um. Any? No. Okay. You know they're calling for. A lot of snow this winter. Sure. Okay. Farmer's Almanac calling for a ton of snow for our area this winter. Okay. Do you have any sense of 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 what kind of accuracy we're talking here? Again, that's a very general prediction anyway, but I so no, no, I have no clue. But what, <laughs> what I heard the Farmer's Almanac said was that expect a rainy November. And then a snowy December, January, and February. Okay, which would be which would be out of the norm. Like normally, we have a rainy November, and then a spot or snow or two through December, but no, yeah. nothing heavy. But the heavy stuff comes in January, January, the first Fe- few weeks of February, first couple weeks of February. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they're calling for a lot of snow. The farmers' almanac. But I put no. I, I don't put any stock in it because I go. How can you predict this? <laughs> I have no idea. A year out, right? They publish right. it at, at every spring. I don't know when they publish it. But I don't know. They put that thing out and try to predict the weather for the year. What a gig. Yeah. How do you get away with that? I don't know. I, mean, I need one of those gigs. Yeah. Can you make it a side hustle? That'd be wonderful. If I could predict the weather for the <laughs> – you know what? October next year, here's what's happening. That's right. No one expects you to be right. Yeah. Yeah, but you get published year after year. anyway. There you go. There you what, go. Uh, go ahead, do the spiel. Yeah, now I'm go. upset. Okay, yeah. <laughs> now that I've gotten you worked up. Uh, if you would like to contact the show, you can find us on Twitter at V and S Pod. You can email the show various and sundry podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, where we'd love for you to like and follow. You can find us on YouTube, and it would be helpful if you don't already, to go ahead and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you are accessing the show, whether it's the Apple Podcast app, whether it's Stitcher or what was the one you showed me today that you use? Oh, uh, Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast. I use Overcast. I'm considering getting out of that. I'm not, it feels a little wonky to me at points. Hmm. But, um, 
In any case, hitting that subscribe button helps us a good bit and uh, we appreciate it. And of course, leaving a review and a five-star rating is also good. I went on to Spotify to check and you can see the number of five-star reviews we've, we've gotten, but I don't think there's a place to actually leave a review. To write something? Yeah. That's okay. So, uh, yeah. So how many five star? How many five? Eleven, I think. Really? Yeah. I, that's great. Got some Spotify listeners. So, um, yeah. All right, John. Let's talk some sports. A lot, lot of football action going on this weekend. It was a good weekend in that regard. Yeah. Let's start talk. of NFL, college yes. football week, week yeah. two and a half. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's week two. Let's forget about whatever that first week, sort of week zero is. Um, again, this is this was another weekend where I just found myself thinking this is why I love college football because of the craziness. Uh, let's start with Ohio State. They beat Arkansas State 45-12. Uh, looked pretty good for the most part. Um, and so not not a lot that emerges from that game. The more the more nationally significant results were, and okay, Notre Dame fans, time to take your lumps. You lost to Marshall, yeah, at home. Marshall's kind of got a fun story, though, right? With the with sure. the movie and sure, and sure. But they were like a twenty plus point favorite in that game. Yeah, they they should not. Have. They should not have lost to Marshall at home. So it uh, could be a tough season for them. They lost their initial starting quarterback as well. Um, so we'll see if they can right the ship. Uh, Alabama barely squeaked by Texas. Did you watch any of these games? Um, I saw parts of – we don't have it on the rundown – the Tennessee-Pittsburgh game. I saw parts of that as well, yeah. Um, So Alabama needed a field goal late to win that game against Texas on the road. The biggest upset of the weekend, Appalachian State went to Texas A&M. Yeah, I saw this. And beat them 17-14. I think with Manziel on the sideline probably, as well. That's probably why they lost. Yeah, <laughs> inviting inviting that that drama back into your into your stadium. Um, you know who was probably happiest about that loss right there by Texas A and M to Appalachian State? Notre Dame, Michigan fans, Michigan fans, because Michigan is the school that's infamous for losing to Appalachian State when they were highly ranked back in two thousand six. Yeah, and so now. A little bit of that stigma goes away 16, seven, 16 years later with Texas A&M now losing against Appalachian State. The funny thing is, is that Texas A&M paid Appalachian State to come play them. Right. Well, didn't didn't Michigan pay pay yes. Appalachian State to yeah, come play then, them? Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 yeah. And all the big schools do this. Yeah. They find an opponent that they think they're just going to beat the crud out of and they say – why don't you come in? We'll play you. We'll pay you like I think uh, that one was like one point four million dollars, <laughs> which for those smaller schools like that funds the athletic department. Yeah, uh, you know, so it's that's why they do it. That's great on the balance sheet. Yeah, uh, so it's especially embarrassing though when you pay somebody to come into your house and, and they they beat you. Do you think Ohio State paid Arkansas State? I'm sure they did. Yeah. I just don't know how much. Okay, my guess is it's probably in that same range of anywhere between one million and one point five million. Um. In another upset, Georgia Southern beat Nebraska. Yeah, Georgia and, Southern not a power. No, it's not. A, it's not Appalachian State no. for sure. So you know, a one. I think that was like a one point two million dollar payout that Nebraska paid them. 
Uh, and after the game, the day, the next day, uh, Nebraska did fire their coach Scott Frost, who's a Nebraska legend as yeah. a player. So just that was the last straw for them. I just love the craziness of college football, the unpredictability of the results and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah. Ten- Tennessee beat Pittsburgh. Tennessee a little, did beat little Pittsburgh. bit of an upset. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they were. Tennessee, Pittsburgh was ranked 12th. Tennessee is ranked 20th. Uh, yes. And they were in Pittsburgh as well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, – and then uh, another big game. Uh, I know at least one of our listeners will appreciate talk of this. Kentucky beat Our correspondent. Yeah. Yes. Our, our, our uh, sports correspondent. Yeah. Um, he's a big Kentucky fan. So they, they went into the swamp and beat Florida. It's a good win for him. Yeah. They're getting better at football. They seem to be stepping it up. They are. They are. Um, okay. Let's talk NFL, John. You have the floor. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, Matthew. Whoa. <laughs> I'm not sure you've ever called me. <laughs> have you ever in the history of your life called me? No, no. Uh, <laughs> you call me Doc. You call yeah. me Matt. Yeah. Never Matthew. Never Matthew. Never Matthew. Should I be nervous about what you're about to say? No, I'm just about to go. I'm trying to gather myself and need to vent a little bit. I needed more syllables. Um, (laughs) You know, the off season for the Jets. We signed all these free agents. We got our ducks in a row. Our players are being developed. The thought coming into the season was, this is going to be a competitive team. They're improved on defense. We fixed mm-hmm. the O-line. They got playmakers on the outside. We didn't have Zach Wilson. I'm not sure that mattered, but uh, we we got smashed. Uh, 24-9, right? 24-9. Against the Ravens. And the chair – and we held them to 10 points in the first half, and it was 10-3 at half, which I felt pretty good about. Yeah. The cherry on top was that at the end of the game, we scored that touchdown to make it to, – to get to nine. Yeah. The guy missed the extra point. <laughs> well, of course. Um, which was his second missed field goal of the day. Okay. So not, not, not a good day. Not, not a good day. It was not in. The worst part was the Giants won. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, that Dolphins looked great. They beat the Patriots. Yeah. <laughs> There's no good winner there. Um, <laughs> the Bills looked amazing this yeah, last Bills week. Are just gonna be oh tough. my goodness, they may be Super Bowl favorites after that Maybe. shellacking. Maybe, but yeah, the, I don't know what's going on. There's some experts that have called for us to go zero and eight to start the season. Okay, that. That that would be rough on the podcast. I'm not going to lie. Having you come in here every week after a oh, demoralizing Jets loss, starting off 0 and 8, that, so that, that could be bad for business. I think as I picked the games, I think I had us at one and four to start the season. And so, where, where was the win? I believe it was the Browns. Okay, which they they went into Carolina and beat and beat Carolina, the, but Carolina is a yeah. uh, mismanaged yeah pile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for keeping it PG. Um, yes. <laughs> it's 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 no good. Yeah. They've okay. got three or four quarterbacks. No one's in charge of that offense. Okay. 
I think Baker Mayfield started for them. Yeah, I think that's right. It was weird to see him in a in a white uniform. Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Anyway, yeah, the Jets lost. It was it was it was real bad. Yeah. Um and the coach came out and said, "Our guys played hard." I'm sick of that. <laughs> I I'd rather them play lazy and win. Yeah. You know? I I'd rather have put up a W. Should that be a given though? Honestly, like at the professional level, playing hard should be a given. Oh yeah. Like that should be a Oh yeah. A, a bare minimum expectation, mm-hmm. not a like, well, we played really hard. So they better come out in week two. I believe we have the Browns and uh, and just just dominate. OK. But who knows? Yeah. yeah. It's- uh, Colts and Texans ended in a tie. Yeah. Did you watch any of that game? Yes. Yes. I watched just about the whole thing. OK. So I was watching that. And when it got to 20 to 3 Texans – I turned away and watched oh. the Bears and the 49ers. And then, you know, you see the score update kind of filter through. And I'm like, oh, wow. That's, we got to 2013. I'm like, oh, we'll flip back. The Bears look like they have this under under wraps here. Uh, which, shout out to the Bears for beating the 49ers. Yeah. Um, Justin Fields on a very wet, rainy, torrential downpour day in Chicago. Did you see the video of the guys <laughs> sliding on the field to yeah. the water? Oh, that was yeah. great. So good for him. Uh, but turned it back and the Colts managed to tie it up. And um, yeah. And then the Colts missed a field goal in overtime that would have won it. And then um, the Texans had a drive to about midfield, had a fourth down, decided not to go for it. Like fourth and two-ish with about, I don't know, a minute left. In, in overtime, and they decide to punt, which basically like you're, you're saying well, now we're playing for the tie. Yeah. Which, you know, at one level you understand because if you don't get that, the Colts need to throw two short passes and they're in field goal range again. Yep. So it's a very conservative play, but at some level understandable, I suppose. They can go 8-8 eight eight now. They can. Yes. They can go eight and eight. <laughs> That's math that you can do with that yeah. one tie in there. Yeah. They can go That's eight and eight. so helpful to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can't go eight and eight. They can. Um, anything else on the NFL front that you wanted to hit on? Um, Vikings look strong. I watched that game. They did. But let's be honest. The wide receivers that Aaron Rodgers are throwing to uh, is throwing to. It's it's not pretty. No. Well, did you, the very first play. Of the Packers, I did see that play. I mean, their their rookie wide receiver, I forget his name, beats Patrick. Is it Patrick Peterson, I think, the corner? Mm-hmm. Toasts him. Aaron Rodgers puts it right on the money. Would Hits him in the hands. Would have been a 75-yard touchdown pass to start the game for the Packers. Drops it. And he did not throw him to him again until the fourth quarter. Well, and it's funny is you, they showed the reaction of Aaron Rodgers, and you could see him kind of roll his eyes and just kind of look over the sideline and just go, you know, roll the eyes like, this is what you gave me. I've been telling you. So not that I have any sympathy for him. I'm not a big Aaron Rodgers fan. No. What thoughts on his new haircut? I think he looks ridiculous in the mm. long hair. So, But it's more than that. It's like, I don't know. He looks like Sonic the, Sonic the Hedgehog out there. <laughs> I don't know. It All doesn't right. look good. Yeah. I, 
It doesn't go well with the gray beard. No. You know? No. Um, we have to talk some Mets because we didn't talk last week about the Mets. Yeah. And there's been some been some trouble in, 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 in Mets world here. Um, Where do we stand now? Well, what do you mean trouble in Mets world? Well, I think the last – two weeks ago when we did a Mets update, they had like a four-game lead. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And what, what, where are they at now? They're, they're up a game and a half. Okay. They're up a game and a half. They're, didn't there come a point though where they actually lost the lead? We lost the lead. We were, we were half game down. Okay. Okay. So uh, we hit our first skid of the season. We played Washington, lost two of three, which we had no business losing to Washington. And then we lost the first in a Pirate series. So we lost three games in a row to bad teams. Yeah. Um, and the bats just weren't clicking for us. Uh, it seems like they've come back around since then. Uh, part of the issue is since the the Braves since June one have been playing at a 126 win pace, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, that's, and that's pretty good. Yeah, and we're pe- we're playing at like a 115. Yeah, that's a World Series contending oh, pace. For sure. For sure. Uh, however, we're losing ground <laughs> because because they're. Uh, yeah. They're playing at 126. Now, they ran into Seattle a little bit this weekend, and that's given us some breathing room. And so how many games are left in the regular season now? Like 15? Uh, they played at the end of the month. Yeah, 15, 17, something like that. I mean, that. we're recording on September 12th. 12th. 18 days left in the month. Probably figure 15, 14, 15 more games left. Yeah, 17 maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. One, two days off in there. Where's our confidence level that your Mets are going to hold on to the division? I mean, they're going to make the playoffs, obviously. Well, so what's funny is when the Braves took the lead, we had a 10-and-a-half game lead in the wild card when, yeah. when that happened. So we're making the playoffs. Uh, it'll come down. So they play the Braves last season of the series of the season. Okay. Which will be appointment television. <laughs> For some, at least, yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it will be good. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, we'll, what, we'll what's see. our confidence level that the, that the Mets are going to hang on and win the division? Um, I would say I'm at like a seventy-five percent confident. Okay. Yeah. And how much of that is is that your natural optimism? Seventy-three. <laughs> that's right. Percent percent optimism. Yes. Um, there's always the part of the Mets fan that's always like, like. Like oh 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 uh, seven when we had a I think fifteen game lead entering September and missed the playoffs, okay. or so, something like that, right? And it was yeah. just an epic collapse. Yeah. Uh, there's always that fear. I think this team is actually pretty talented. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be healthy when the playoffs start. I think we have a real chance of of getting through. Okay. All right, we have to move on. We went really long on sports. There It was a full weekend. It was a big sports weekend. It was so. Let's move on to our main topic. Today we're talking about systematic theology. Yay. Yeah. So um, we are now in part three of a four-part series that uh, we're talking about different kinds of theology in terms of the just the kind of the academic discipline. So we've already talked about biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Last week we talked about uh, historical theology, and now today we're talking about systematic theology, which I think when most people hear the term theology, this is probably the, what they're really thinking here, yeah. right? Yeah. That um, 
if people don't have the sort of categories for the different kinds of theology and you just say, um, I'm reading a theology book or that person likes theology, this – they're typically talking more in the realm of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got a couple of definitions here. We've got one by Gerald Bray and one by Wayne Grudem. How about you read the Gerald Bray one? Okay. Uh, so good old Gerald uh, says, systematic theology is the attempt to put Christian doctrine in a logical order, often starting from one fundamental principle, an approach that goes all the way back to early Christianity. Yes. Yep. So sort sort of relates it to historical theology there a little bit. Yeah, in terms of uh, – I think he's just trying to say this – the practice of systematic theology has its roots early on in the history of the church of trying to organize um, Christian doctrine in some semblance of a logical order. Yeah, which, which tells you maybe maybe systematic theology is a bit natural when it uh, – to, to the Christian that – Taking things and unpacking them and learning about them and organizing them uh, is natural to the Christian. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Uh, let's give the, the the longer definition here by Wayne Grudem. Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? This definition indicates that systematic theology involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages in the Bible on various topics and then summarizing their teachings clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. This definition indicates that systematic theology involves collecting – oops, that's a duplicate there. My bad. That was it. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that was a bad copy and paste there. In any case, the the, the point here being – uh, what does the whole Bible teach? And then uh, collecting and organizing it in categories. Um, and so I, I think the driving question of systematic theology tends to be, as, as Grudem points out there, what does the whole Bible teach about and then fill in the blank with a category? Mm-hmm. What does it teach about God? What does the whole Bible teach about uh, the created world? What does the whole Bible teach about the Bible itself? What does the Bible teach about humanity? And you're trying to organize these into logical categories and showing the relationship of those categories to uh, each other. So, Doc, let me ask you this. Um, As we're talking about systematic theology, is it strictly only scripture we come to to understand systematic theology or does philosophy, epistemology – some of these other philosophical traditions speak into systematics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let me give the caveat that says, um, obviously, our philosophical and our epistemological commitments influence everything that we think about. Sure. So I don't want to paint the picture of, well, wow, biblical theology is completely free from any philosophical influence or anything like that. That's not the case at all. But I will say that in systematic theology, there is often a much more explicit use of philosophical categories mm-hmm. to uh, to think through what the Bible teaches about certain topics. 
And so um, one of the key differences between biblical theology and systematic theology then is biblical theology tends to try to stay within the explicit categories that the Bible itself offers us. Mm -hmm. So when it thinks about – when we think about uh, the person of Jesus, for example, biblical theology is more likely to focus on uh, themes like Jesus is the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the – son of David. He's the descendant of – he's the promised seed of Abraham. Uh, So those kinds of categories are categories that the Bible itself says, here is how you should understand Jesus. Systematic theology comes along and says, well, you know, there's a lot – there's a lot of emphasis in the Bible about Jesus is fully human Mm -hmm. and also that he's fully God. How do we understand that? Yeah. That's not a question that the Bible itself explicitly teaches you how to put that together. So along comes systematic theology and says, well, in order to make, you know, in order for us to understand what we should believe about who Jesus is, we should try to synthesize and summarize and put together the full humanity of Jesus and the full deity of Jesus. And 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 what terms do we need to use? if we even need to make up new terms mm-hmm. in order to capture that reality. So that's that. That's an example of how um, biblical theology and systematic theology differ. And, and, and I, I'm not trying to pit one against the other. I'm just saying they're asking some different questions at points. And that's, and a, that's a good thing. It is. It is for sure. Uh, we need both. And honestly – the best systematic theology incorporates the insights of biblical theology mm-hmm. and historical theology. Has to, yeah. If you're not doing that, then you're not doing good systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even on that question that I just raised of you know the, the, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus in one person. So you're going to lean on the biblical descriptions of, of Jesus being – the Son of Man and the Son of God and all that that entails. But you're also going to need to lean on earlier historical debates that go back to the earliest centuries of the church to understand who Jesus is and yeah. how, how do we understand, you know, go back, going back to the Arian controversy mm-hmm. and, and, and those kinds of debates within the history of theology to have a full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is. And that's ultimately what systematic theology is trying to do is use those other aspects or other approaches to theology in order to help you come to a summary statement or a summary conclusion of this is what we should believe about who Jesus is. Is it fair to say – like I hear you saying we need both. We need both. We need both. Is it fair to say that – I should say we need all three of those we, to yeah. include historical theology as well. We sure, need all three. sure. Yeah. Uh, we need we need all three. Sure, um, is to say that naturally over time, uh, certain either systematics, biblical or historical or even practical, uh, want to shove the others out of the way and go, look at me. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, I'm the most important, and and we could probably name examples of that. Although we probably don't need to name names. Well, 
Yeah, for, absolutely. And and I think even within the church, there these things can go in waves or ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. So right now, we are living in what I would argue is the golden age of biblical theology within the evangelical movement. This is the golden age right now. Okay. This is I'm here for it. This is yeah. the time period in which the most work in biblical theology is being done. It's strong. It's robust. It's solid. There's an appetite for it. It's not just in the academy. It's being used in the church. It's fueling preaching. And when you look at all the different publications that are out there, this is the the amount of resources available now for biblical theology is staggering. And that's happened within the last 30 I'd say 30 to 35 years is when that when this golden age has kind of ramped up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, by contrast, I think what has happened is that that has led some within the church to actually diminish or downplay the role of systematic theology. Yeah. And so that's not healthy. That's not good. We need both. Mm-hmm. And, and I am encouraged. I do think that there's a bit of a turning of the tide, that there's been a, a bit more of a renaissance of some, of some robust, good, systematic theology work being done. Um, and I, this is not my area of expertise. But my take on this is I think part of what has happened is, is that some approaches to systematic theology became so philosophically oriented and so removed from the text of the Bible itself as well as removed from the life of the church where you've got systematic theologians arguing back and forth over very esoteric, minute Mm -hmm. points that the average Christian looks at and goes, I have no idea why that even matters. Why are you arguing about that? Yeah. Why should I care about that? What are, are there any practical implications from that? And when that happens, people in the church just tend to tune out and go, why should I care about this? By contrast, biblical theology has had a renaissance in part because it's been uh, shown how it helps people read their Bibles well. The average ordinary person, not just you know the seminary student or the Bible college student, mm-hmm. but but the but the ordinary person in the pew that is exposed to good, robust biblical theology uh, from the pulpit and in Sunday school classes and even just reading resources is growing in his or her understanding in such a way that that's helped fuel that Renaissance. And so there needs to be more of that kind of work done on the systematic theology end to create a bit of a, a renaissance in that direction. Well, I sent you on a, I sent you on a trip there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but think about this. Like the, the number of book series now that are biblical theology oriented. Yeah. They're just multiplying and multiplying. Yeah, I, 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 I'm partly responsible for that in some ways. So <laughs> I just got uh, – I believe it's the academic catalog for Zondervan, I believe, came in the mail today. Mm-hmm. And they have their own uh, biblical theology series yeah. that, that I didn't know about. And every they're publisher like, – every evangelical publisher is trying to get a piece of that monster market now. Yeah. That's a good thing in many ways. Yeah. 
there's just a lot less on systematic theology. Though Crossway does have a series that's called Short Studies in, in Systematic Theology mm-hmm. that'll take individual topics. I think I'm I think you a mentioned few weeks one ago. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. My one thing I liked was Mark Thompson's book on the Doctrine of Scripture that's in that series. So there are resources out there that that are uh, leading to at least a bit of a recovery of systematic theology. Yeah. Um, what uh, what's been your experience with systematic theology? Do you remember like when you were first kind of maybe exposed to it, or kind of got it kind of got on your radar a little bit? So. I think I use the term systematics, systematic theology, and theology mm-hmm. interchangeably for a long time. Yeah, and particularly when I was growing up, I think I had a curiosity, like I wanted to learn, but was in a church that wasn't really well equipped to teach it or to engage with it. So I think I just always sort of had a natural curiosity about it. I think when I got to seminary, it was used as a bit of a blunt object. <laughs> Um, if I can put it that way, right? It sure. was it was used as like a no. Here's why I'm right, sort of sort of thing. And it took okay. the, it took a bit of the joy out of reading about sure. it and discovering it. Um, but I think it's something that over the last probably five to seven years, been coming back around on and, okay. and uh, finding that interesting discovery again. But I'm finding it not in like systematic theology surveys, right? That yeah. sort of have a chapter on each one. I'm finding like. Let's dip in on the Trinity here and let's just go, you know, r- real deep. And let's let's dip in here on Scripture and go and yeah. go deep. So that I think that's that's a bit where I'm at um, with systematic theology and sure. and how I've experienced it over the years. Yeah, um, I know it was part of your desire to go to Trinity, right? Was, was systematics? Yeah, when I first started seminary, I thought I was going to go down the systematic theology road, um, and there was a lot of factors that went into moving away from that. But I think part of it was the stuff that I was reading and looking at. It just felt oftentimes the discussions felt so far removed from the text of the scripture itself. Maybe I just wasn't reading the right stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And so I found myself thinking, I want to be someone who's digging in the text and wrestling with the text consistently and not just at a – uh, I need to think about all the verses that are out there about this and kind of rifling through and go, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one. Now, what does that combine together to get me the result of? Um, but no, like I want to dig in to uh, to the languages and all of that to, to get a better understanding. So um, so I feel like I, I, I have um, – I'm realizing more and more of late how much I need to to go back and probably read a little bit more in the systematics end, but more like like I mentioned with that book, uh, more uh, individual doctrine kind of stuff as opposed to like a survey text like mm-hmm. a Grudem or an Erickson or something else like that. Yeah. So, well, I want to make sure we, we land on what are some practical um, – what are some practical ways that the ordinary person sitting in the pew can benefit from or even access systematic theology or the fruit of systematic theology? So uh, 
I mean, like like you were just saying, there there's some short series that are coming out currently mm-hmm. through was it Crossway? It is uh, that's that's doing that. I, I would also say if you're looking for a bit more of a survey, um, and not that I love everything he does, but uh, Wayne Grudem has three levels of a systematic theology. Yeah. One is like 150 pages. That feels really manageable as a survey. <laughs> he then has uh, one that all our undergraduates read here. And that's yeah. what? It's called Bible Doctrine. Bible Doctrine. That's like in the 400 range, I think. 400 maybe? I was thinking, pages? yeah, 350, 400, somewhere in that ballpark. And then he has his Big Wayne, uh, which is uh, <laughs> his Wayne Manor. Oh, uh, you missed an opportunity to refer to the other one as Lil Wayne. Yeah, that's what we call it on campus, <laughs> Lil Wayne. Uh, but uh, uh, Wayne Manor, uh, the real big one, is uh, gosh, what eight hundred thousand? Like what, what? What's it getting up to? It's it's over a thousand pages. Is it over a thousand yeah. pages? Okay. Yeah, but yeah. So there's there's some levels there if you're looking for there different are. sizes. Yes. Um, but I would encourage you to pick up, you know, books on. Uh, Discussions of uh, inspiration, or mm-hmm. you, you know, little little short studies. Yes. Uh, if you're interested in how different views sort of engage with one another, mm-hmm. uh, there is a series. It can get a bit technical and academic from time to time, but the Counterpoint series from Zondervan yeah. can be very very good. Yep. Um, not always systematics, but oftentimes it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, here is. I will share your caveat with the Grudem stuff. Um, here in my mind is what Grudem is best at. If you want to have basically all of the texts that are relevant to a particular topic discussed, the Grudem textbook, the, mm-hmm. the, the big, you know, Wayne Manor as we're called. Wayne it. Manor. I like that one. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Uh, is, uh, is the way to go. Even if you disagree with how he discusses them or how he puts them together, he is very good at giving you, well, these are the texts you need to think through. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also, at the end of each of those chapters, has a hymn that goes along with whatever topic, as well as some discussion questions in there and a suggested scripture memory verse. And so part, part of what I appreciate about that book, even if I have some qualms with it and you know, I think a lot of other sort of professional systematic theologians might kind of turn their nose up at it at points because it's not nuanced or sophisticated enough for their taste, whatever. Um, it is, I think, uh, it shows his pastor's heart in what he's done with that to give those kinds of discussion questions, a hymn, a scripture memory verse, connections to the different um, like confessions throughout the church, like the Westminster Confession, sure. the Nicene Creed or things like that. He also gives uh, reading like if you want to hear the charismatic view on this, yeah. go to this author. If yeah. you want to hear the Catholic view on this, go to this author. If you want to hear the mm-hmm. Presbyterian view on this, go to this author. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's helpful in those respects. So for sure. Um, we will link to uh, this article by Gerald Bray, which we took the definition from earlier in our discussion uh, on the website uh, on the website on the uh, in the show notes and uh, I'm not sure if we have anything else we want to add in terms of resources I mean Wayne Grudem's we, we mentioned the three Wayne Grudem books that are out there uh, I mentioned the short studies in systematic theology that Crossway publishes yep. it's got uh, several contributions in it 
that would be a good starting point as well. Um, so yeah, I think those would be all good places to look. All right, John, we need to move on to this day in sports history. Okay. Uh, September the 13th, 2022. Yeah. Um, just clicking right through the year, aren't we? Yes. I mean, this is episode 141. I mean... Are we almost up to... By the end of the year, we should be at... What is that? Three three years? Be, this, Have we been doing this? Yeah. Three, almost we'll three years? We'll be like episode 156 by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we haven't missed a week yet. You know, let me let me knock on this wooden table here. That's right. Um, That's right. Okay, uh, eighteen eighty-three, my yeah. favorite year. <laughs> uh, oh boy, uh, Hugh Daly, not the name of a newspaper, no, a person, a one-armed pitcher for Cleveland, Forest City. I guess that's well before the Indians. Yes. Uh, Tosses a one nothing no hitter against Philadelphia. Yeah, that's just a reminder of how old baseball is. Yeah, eighteen eighty three. We're not digging up any eighteen eighty three notes for the for for football. No, you know, was football invented? When did I think so? I think so. Whew. All right, nineteen oh nine. Getting closer. Another favorite <laughs> year of mine. Uh, Ty Cobb. That's a name I know. Yes. Uh, clinches AL home run title with his ninth home run, all of which were inside the park. Yeah. Has the game changed just a little bit? Uh, well, I'd say so. <laughs> Nine. That's like that's like a good, you know, two week stretch for somebody these days. Oh like, yeah. Like, you know, you, you get. That's like an average player month. Yeah. Um, 1936, not even a World <laughs> War II yet. Um, 1936, 17-year-old uh, Cleveland Indians future baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Bob Feller strikes out, uh, then recorded. Then then record. Then record. There we go. 17 Philadelphia A's uh -huh. in a 5-2 win at League Park in Cleveland. Strikes out. 17. At the age of 17. 17. Yeah, you're right. I totally missed that. I was just reading it. 17-year-old um, <laughs> strikes out 17. How is that not a – when did child labor laws come into effect? <laughs> oh no. It must have been uh, – well, I guess at 17. I, I think child labor laws typically are under 16, aren't they? I think 16 I think now they cover. are. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Uh, 1970. All right, we're catching up. Uh, Still, neither of us were born. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Gary Muck. Uh, help me with that. <laughs> help me with that. Uh, Muck Murek. <laughs> I think it's murky. Murky. Oh, yeah, boy. M U H R C K E. Yeah. Murky? It's the four consonants in a row there that are giving me <laughs> fits. Um, Wins the inaugural New York City Marathon in two hours and 31 minutes. Okay. couple notes. First of all, I will confess that I pretty much only picked that one. Because of the because name? Because of the name. Okay. I wanted to watch you stumble over it. Okay. But I, I thought the New York Marathon went back further than 1970. I would have guessed it went yeah, back that's, older. Yeah, that's shocking to me. I would, ex I would assume it was like a, a 
maybe maybe in the aftermath of World War II, yeah, like starting 1940s, it. Forties, early fifties, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, Gary Mur- Murky uh, <laughs> apparently won it in in nineteen. And that's really fast. I mean, that's I mean, not by today's standards. Yeah, I mean, but still two and a half hours. I couldn't do that. No. Um, Nineteen ninety one. We're both alive. Yes, I graduated uh, from high school in nineteen ninety one. Joe Carter, first uh, first baseball player with three consecutive one hundred. RBI seasons with three different teams. Wow. Made the rounds. Indians, Padres, and the Blue Jays. Yeah. Joe Carter. Yeah. So uh, who do you like out of that out of that list? <sighs> oh, my. Um, there's part of me that really just likes Hugh Daly because uh, it's the 1800s. Uh, and he's a one-armed dude, man. That's, 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 that's impressive. It is. Um, Jim A- was it Jim Abbott? Jim Abbott, the one-armed pitcher. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think yeah. he ever threw a new hitter, though. I don't know. I don't think so. But it was remarkable to see him, like, throw. He would, he would hold his mitt on his shortened arm mm-hmm. on the. I guess is. Do we call that a stump? I I, I don't. I have no I don't idea. know what the politically correct no, term is. I just, so please, Lord, forgive me if I've said something that is offensive to anyone in the disabled community. Just yeah. But yeah, he, he would wear it on his, on his uh, shortened arm. Can we go with that? His yeah, his non- yeah, yeah. Okay, his no fingered <laughs> arm. Yeah. Okay. Gosh. And then he oh released boy. the pitch, and then he would, in one seamless motion, put his pitching hand into the glove so he could field. It was impressive. But he's not on our list today. He's not. He's not. So um, who, do you, who, who do you got? I'm between Hugh Daly and Ty Cobb. Okay, I want to go Hugh Daly then. Okay, Hugh Daly. Hugh Daly it is. One thing you liked. Uh, I am going to go with the Queen of England. <laughs> okay. Um, I really enjoyed the amount of pieces I read over the weekend of people's praise uh, for Queen Elizabeth. Okay. And reigning for 70 years, even though she has no real authority – at one level, except over New Zealand and Australia and Canada, I think. Um, what an impressive reign. And she was always very dignified, yeah. uh, very put together. I appreciate that about her. Um, I don't know if I think much of her parenting skills, you know, uh, based on the offspring. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah, but you want to know what that much wealth would, would, would just about anybody. Ru- ruin yeah. anybody. Yeah, for sure. Um, did you know like, – I knew that she was – that she was at some level a Christian, but some of the pieces that I that I read, like lauding her genuine her, mm-hmm. piety and faith, from and not just from like, I mean from from people that we would consider of our tribe, who apparently know this, like who who, who have yeah, I was surprised by some of those, which which makes me skeptical at some level, yeah, uh, but. Yeah, that's exciting if if it's if it's indeed real. Yeah. Yeah, it's just been fascinating to see the response to her passing um and the the hatred towards her son. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, Chuck. Charles the 3rd. Charles the right? 3rd. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you see uh he was getting ready to sit down and he just kind of went like this and he kept doing this and he needed somebody to move something 6 inches on the desk cuz he didn't want to do it himself. <laughs> I'm like that's not a good look. No, it's not. And so his 
So Charles's wife, Camilla, not the queen now, right? She is his – I think the, the, the correct term is consort. She's not the queen. I have no idea. I, I, I have no idea. This, I think that's the case. This is not my area of expertise. <laughs> I am not – I don't know. You, know. you know who is – not that we could get him on the program, but Al Mohler is like is into dialed it? in on British history. He did – he was interviewed on the World and Everything in It podcast. And he was talking about the historical significance of Elizabeth and like – Really? Mean, like, like, I mean rooting her within this historical tradition and not just a passing knowledge but like clearly you're an Anglophile. Like yeah. You, you wish you were British, don't you, Al? Like, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So that's your one thing you like then? Yeah. Not that she's dead, but but just just <laughs> okay. the legacy she's okay. yes, leaving yeah. behind. I, I, I hope that people would have assumed. I just want to be clear. I don't want to be accused of of anything. Yes. Okay. So my one thing I liked is um, that my life education class, my Sunday school class. I think we're switching back to Sunday school. I've seen that. I, I've now. seen that on some communication. Yeah. Whatever. I'm I'm back in the classroom teaching Luke at my church on Sunday mornings. Took the summer off. We jumped back in this past Sunday morning. Had like 60-ish people in that room. Yeah, it was it, a packed it was, house. It was great. It was great. It was, it was warm. It was. Man, I was sweating up there. Have you ever noticed just about every week you get up there and go, let's keep the doors open you know, for airflow without fail. Somebody closes those yeah. doors. Yeah, I'm going to have to have a conversation with our deacons or whoever to try to get the AC cranked like – before, like start it like an hour before to get it in that room. Yeah. Um, so uh, as it cools off, though, maybe just to open up those windows. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It, do they open? Do you know? I have no they, idea. they may not be openable windows. They look like openable windows, yeah, but yeah. Uh, what do I know? Anyway, we're back in Luke 16. Of course, we jump into a really hard passage: the parable of the dishonest manager. Yeah, that was that was a, that was a difficult passage. That's one of the hardest in Luke. So that was not ideal, but good group. Good questions, good interaction. Um, I just appreciate there seems to be just such a strong hunger for uh, getting in the word like that and yeah. digging into it. So that's my one thing I liked. All right. We have talked lots of football. We have talked a little bit of Mets. We've talked systematic theology. We have talked Hugh Daly, a one-armed pitcher for Cleveland back in 1883. 1883. We have talked about Queen Elizabeth dying. Not that that's a good thing. It's not a good thing, but she left a legacy. Yes. And we have talked about my Sunday school class on the gospel according to Luke. And so I think by definition, we have covered our various and sundry topics for over 50 minutes now. Are we at 50? (laughs) Yes. And so I think... uh, All that's left for us to say is, until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later.